Good morning, good morning, Sugar Creek. It is so good to see you this morning. My name is Xavier Maryland. I get the chance to serve as our high school pastor here at the Sugarland campus, and it is my complete honor just to say good morning and to welcome you into church this morning. Whether you're here in person or whether you're online or at our Richmond, Rosenberg, Missouri City, or Darrington campus, we are honored that you decided to worship with us. Very special welcome to those of you who decided to come in person, even though you lost an hour of sleep. I believe that God is going to give you an extra blessing this week. Uh, I don't really believe that, but it sounds good. Uh, Thank you is what I probably should say. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, We are going to jump in today, but once again, just on behalf of our senior pastor, Pastor Mark Hartman, who I'm convinced is one of the greatest men on this side of heaven, just allow us to say thank you, and we appreciate you for being here today. Yeah, that's good. Um, I want to pray for us one more time as we dive into our scripture today, and then we'll jump in. God, thank you so much for a chance to dive into your word. We pray today, Father, that your word would be convicting, encouraging, and inspiring. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My father is one of the hardest working men that I know. Uh, Just to give you a little bit of background, my dad is about a 25, 26-year entrepreneur. Now he owns an HVAC company that he owns and operates back in North Carolina. While he was building his HVAC business, he had two full-time jobs. His first full-time job uh, before he went into the reserves, my father was in the army and he's active duty. And he ends up going from the army from active duty to being a reservist. He's done two or three tours uh, in, in multiple different wars. And he retired after 22 or 23 years in the military. While being in the military, he was also working at the fire department. So the times where he wasn't away at war or the times where he wasn't at reserve duty or the times that he wasn't working working on his business, he was actually working at the fire department as a full-time fireman. And he was doing all of that while building his own business and then raising uh, and leading his family. Uh, I say that to say my father, once again, is the hardest working man that I have ever met. One of the things I love about my dad, my dad though, is that he's a pretty simple guy. He didn't need a lot to decompress after he came home from work. Some of his longer days, it wasn't uncommon for him to wake up and leave around 6 a.m. and maybe even to not get home until around 7.30 or 8 p.m. He had long days. And so when he got home, he didn't have a man cave and he didn't necessarily have, you know, this big shrine built to himself where he can go and lock away. After he came home and he spoke to us and he gave me and my brother's fist bumps, he would come and he would find his chair, which was actually very similar to the chair I have right here, except his chair was a recliner. 
And it was the chair. Anybody in here have the chair in your house? You know, it's kind of yours or it's kind of, you know, belongs to the person who owns or leads the house. It's the chair. You don't sit there. And essentially what my father would do is he would come home and he would sit in his chair. The remote would always be within reach. If it wasn't, we had a different problem. But the remote would always be within reach. And my dad got a chance to decide whatever we would watch on TV that day. From this chair, my father made all the decisions. He made decisions about if we were going to have conversations or not, because some Sometimes we actually didn't have conversations. Uh, we would just watch TV and other times he would say, no, we need to meditate on what God might be doing today. And so we would just sit in silence and sometimes he would, you know, tee up a discussion question. Hey, how was school today? And my brothers and I would chat back and forth. And sometimes he would say, you know, the teacher already called me. Whether he was lying or not, I don't know, but I would spill my guts every time. I got caught every time. It was always the baby. <sighs> okay, so my dad would sit in his chair. My brothers and I made a rule that if we ever got home before my father, whoever sat in the chair had all the authority and decision-making that my dad had. So we would run home and we would rush to the chair and sit in the throne of power. And as we sat in the throne of power, we made the decision about what we watched on TV that day. We made the decision if we were really bold and wanted to risk our lives, we made the decision on who touched the thermostat. If we were feeling really bold, we made a decision on if we had a conversation. And so it became a big fight to decide who would be in the chair to make the decisions. And the truth is that in your life and my life, we have a chair just like this, but it's inside of our hearts. And I'm not talking about the organ that is responsible for pumping blood throughout your body. I'm talking about your heart, your soul, your emotions, your life's desires, the things that drive you, what leads you to make decisions. There is a chair just like this in your heart and it belongs to God. Now, that's in a perfect world. In your life and in my life, what tends to happen is we tend to remove God from this chair from the decision-making chair. And sometimes we sit in the chair. Sometimes we put our children in the chair. Sometimes we put our finances in the chair. Sometimes we put our family in the chair. And what'll begin to happen is we will start making decisions that are driven by all of those things. And when we make decisions driven by something other than our creator, we end up driving our lives into a direction that we really don't want it to go. And so I want to submit for us today to consider what it would look like to have a consistent heart check to make sure that I'm not moving my priorities around, to make sure that I'm not giving up decision-making and being driven by something that I don't wanna be led or driven by and driven into a direction that I really don't wanna be driven or led to. Because the scripture says, if you trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, don't put yourself in the chair. Let God have his rightful seat. We're going to look at it today at a scripture in the book of 1 Samuel. Now, 1 Samuel is... Uh 
a story that outlines uh, a guy named Samuel, who's actually a prophet for God. And Samuel was responsible for electing a king in the first part of his life, for electing a king for the children of Israel. Now, the children of Israel didn't need a king because God was their king, but they said, no, we want an actual king because we want to be like everybody else. They literally turned into toddlers. And so they're like, hey, we want a king. And so God says, okay, Samuel, I want you to go and find them a king. And they anoint this guy named Saul. Plot twist, Saul, not the best king. As a matter of fact, Saul made a lot of bad decisions and God actually removed his blessing from Saul. We jump in right after one of those bad decisions in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse number 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse number 13. It says this, how foolish, Samuel exclaimed, you have not kept the command your Lord God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom must end. For the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Everybody say his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. God was looking for a man after his own heart and he had found him and he ends up being King David, David and Goliath, the one who killed him with a slingshot. You see, we know David wasn't perfect, but the truth is that David had made a habit of checking his heart and making sure his heart was aligned with that of God. And so you and I have to consistently do what David is, which is check our hearts and make sure we aren't drifting towards letting somebody else sit in the chair. Because when I follow God's heart, I let God have the seat in the throne of my own heart. So here's the first point. You have to always be aware of who's in the chair. Always be aware of who is in the chair. We see a few chapters later um, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we see uh, Saul make another bad decision. He's coming out of a war that the Lord had just called him to fight and a war that he had just won. And God gave him a very specific command in this war. He said, when you go in, I don't want you to spare any of the animals. Don't save any of the crops. Don't keep any of the gold. Don't spare any of the people. I, want, I don't want you to keep any of this for yourself. Go win the war for me and destroy everything. And we find out that Samuel gets a little, uh, you know, he gets a little prideful and he starts making some bad decisions. And we're going to jump in and watch the decisions that he made in his life as a way to remind us of times that we might have a possible heart issue. Now, I know what you're saying here. Hey, I don't have a heart issue. That, that, that's Saul's issue. Saul is struggling with that. He was doomed from the start. He never had a good heart. But I want to read something to you that I think we miss about King Saul. If you've read your Bible a couple of times, because everybody wants to paint Saul in this pretty bad light. But there's this one verse. If you, if you read too fast, you'll miss it. In 1 Samuel chapter uh, 10, verse number 9. You don't even have to turn it. I'll just read it to you. It says this, as Saul turned and started to leave, God gave him a new heart and all Samuel's signs were fulfilled that day and we see that Saul gets a new heart in chapter 10 but then we see God remove him from the throne in chapter 13 through 15 and so we know that there's this slow drift that happens to each one of us. And if we're not careful, you will find yourself 
starting out with a good heart, but slowly drifting towards a heart and character issue. I have to tell you and be honest, we're gonna go to our first point. This is the most convicting sermon I've ever written. As a matter of fact, I was sitting at my desk one day and you can ask my wife, I was sitting at my desk one day and I said something and was writing something and it was so piercing to my own heart that I stopped and I walked away from the desk and I just cried because it's very possible to feel like you love God and to have these deep piercing heart issues that have slowly crept into your mind and into your heart over time. So what's the first one? What's the first one, Pastor Xavier? How do I know that I might have a sign of a possible heart issue? And that is that I become partial. Point number one is that I become partial. You and I know that we might have a heart issue when I become partial. First Samuel chapter, first Samuel chapter 15, verse nine says this, Saul and his men spared Agog's life and kept the best of the sheep and the goats, the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. So you, you see Samuel here or Saul here knows exactly what the command of God said, but what does he do? He becomes partial to what God said, which means the things that I agree with, God, I'll follow. And the things that I don't agree with, God, you can keep that. And you and I are guilty of doing the same thing sometimes, that we find ourselves reading scriptures that are very encouraging. We find ourselves reading scriptures about how the Lord wants to do something in our lives or wants to fix our family or wants to give us peace or give us joy. But sometimes we can be guilty of avoiding scriptures that speak directly to the sin issue that each and every one of us struggles with. That sometimes it's easier for me to talk about sin in general than it is to talk about my personal sin. That sometimes it's easier for me to talk about the problems in America, the problems in the local church, the problems in the political realm, and not address the glaring sin and heart issue that arises in me every single day. That sometimes it's easy to talk about my family not going to church and being far from God, but not address the anger issue that I've had for the last five years. That, that, that sometimes it's easy to read scripture and to condemn the person in my family who might struggle with homosexuality, but to let greed stay and hide in my heart forever. And that you and I are in danger of having this slow drift and heart issue. Why? Because just like King Saul, we become partial and we choose what we want to dig into and we choose what we want to follow and obey and we choose what we want to elevate and highlight as sin. And we have to be careful because if we are not careful, we will slowly drift away. Here's the craziest thing about Saul's drift is that Saul actually, God said, or uh, God sent Samuel to tell Saul he was removing him from his kingship, but he stayed king for 20 plus years. Which means it's possible for me to be living a life that looks very blessed. But my heart and God far separated. First sign that I might have a possible heart issue is that I become partial, I become partial. 
Number two, the second sign that I, I might have an issue is that I build my own statues. I build my own statues. This is actually comical. Um, I need you to know that when we're reading the Bible, these aren't stories. This, these are actual situations. So sometimes I think of the Bible and I'm like, man, how would I have responded if I watched somebody go through this situation? And right now I would be laughing because this is not laughing like funny, but laughing like, oh my goodness. You ever see somebody making a fool of themselves and you're like, how could you? That, that's how this is funny. First Samuel chapter 15, verse 12, this is after uh, God sends Samuel to tell uh, Saul that he's going to be removed from kinghood. It says, early the next morning, verse 12, Samuel went to find Saul and someone told him Saul went to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself. Then he went on to Gilgal. Sir, I am trying to fire you and you are building statues to your success. I am trying to tell you how bad of a job you are doing and I cannot keep up with you because you are bouncing from city to city to city, erecting monuments about how great you are doing. We could not be further from on the same page. And the truth is that you and I, we don't hire uh, ice sculpturists to come into our houses and take a marble slab or something and chisel a photo of us in our university t-shirt. But we have other things that we use to build statues to ourselves. For you, maybe your statue is your social media page. What happens is your Instagram and your Facebook feed become all the things that you post to feel better about yourself. They're all the things you post and every time somebody likes it or comments or tells you how good of a job you did, there's this little statue that gets erected in your mind and it's just to remind yourself and to remind everybody else how good you feel about what you've done and what you've been able to accomplish. Hashtag to God be the glory. Maybe your statue for yourself isn't your Facebook page. Maybe it's your investment portfolio. Well, not since January, but before January your investment portfolio. And you look around and you see all the green and you see how you're able to make all these decisions. And the more the numbers grow and the more you realize you're gonna be able to retire right when you want to, you start to feel better and better and better about yourself. And this thing becomes a little statue to you, statue to what you've been able to build, statue to what I've been able to build. Maybe your statue has become your children. And as you see them grow up and as they've been more and more successful and as they're the most successful people in your family, every time you go to a family reunion or a gathering, your children parade around as statues to your parenting. All the while receiving the glory while my heart is drifting far from God. Maybe your statue isn't your children. Maybe your statue is your accomplishments or your house. Maybe you look around your neighborhood and I don't know why I've been stuck on this the last couple of weeks. Maybe your statue is your grass. Yeah, get that out of here, not mine. Whatever it is that your statue is, we start to build these things that become monuments to us, your sales numbers. You walk into your office, your name is first on the list every time and it becomes a statue to you. Maybe your statue is how many people you have in your Sunday school connect group class. I knew they wouldn't say amen, Pastor Johnny. I only say that because it's a struggle for me. Even as a pastor, it's really easy to look at ministry and use the things that you're supposed to be doing for God and to let them become statues, monuments of your own greatness. A slow drift. I, I would never stand 
flat-footed on stage or at the house and say, God, I'm better, or God, I deserve this, or God, I'm elevating. But there's a slow creep that happens inside your heart if you're not careful to consistently check it every single day. Have to monitor our hearts. Number two, I mean, number three, I become blind to my mess ups. I become blind to my mess ups. We're walking verse by verse here, if you hadn't noticed, and if you look in 1 Samuel chapter 13, after Samuel is looking for Saul to tell him, hey, you're fired on your day off after you just won this war, we see 1 Samuel chapter 13, or, or chapter 15, verse 13 says this. It says, when Samuel finally found Saul, Saul greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless you, he said. I have carried out the Lord's commands. Look at me, I am amazing. I know that you came to fire me, but I am amazing. Then, Samuel says, what is the bleeding of sheep and goats and the lowing of cattle I hear? Samuel demanded. He's like, hey, if you followed God and did what he said, why do I hear animals that you were supposed to destroy and get rid of? And what happens is Saul is so drifted away that he ignores the sign of his own mess up, his own mistake, his own blatant sin and blatant disobedience towards God. And the truth is, plot twist, you and I do the same thing. That there are things in your life right now that are making noise, problems that have, have existed for a long time and we are ignoring the signs of our own sin towards God ignoring the bleeding sheep and cattle. And I become blind to my mess ups, blind to my mistakes. A relationship with a kid or a family member that you haven't had be well for some time, blind. Maybe you've ignoring a sin that you've kept around for far too long, that you thought it would be done by the time you left college and you thought that maybe after you got married, you wouldn't struggle with this particular thing. Or you thought that maybe I can just kind of glance when my spouse isn't looking, but it doesn't mean anything. And you've kept it around for so long, it's become a normal part of your life. And we are ignoring the bleeding sheep, ignoring blatant disobedience to God. The struggle is, the longer I'm willing to keep something around, the more normal it becomes in my life. The longer I'm willing to say, God is excusing this part of my life, the further my heart will drift away from God. Can we just stop? This is too much. It's too convicted. I'm a, I'm a wretch undone. Okay, we'll keep going. Since nobody wanted to stop. <laughs> Number four, I blame people for my problems. I blame people for my problems. Verse 15, look at what Saul does. After verse 14, when he says, look at all the goats and stuff I hear, Saul says, it's true. The army spared the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle. The army... Are you not the king? 
Do you not make the decisions? Did you not give the command? He did, is the answer. But he says, it's true, the army did it. They did mess up, they spared them all. But then he says, uh, Saul admitted, um, but they are going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. We have destroyed everything else. And Saul starts to blame the decision he made, the problem that he had on somebody else. And we don't outwardly, blatantly, outright blame people for our problems because we're more mature than that. We're more, a little more dignified, you know, especially at Richmond Rosenberg campus because we bring a physical Bible. No, I'm joking. Um, what happens is we get a little more dignified and we don't outright blame people. But let me tell you how it looks and shows up in our personal lives. I didn't want to curse or lash out, but you made me angry. I blame other people for the anger issue in my own heart. It it, it might not be an anger issue for you. Maybe it, it might be, I didn't struggle with this thing, with this addiction, with this temptation until my kids and my job started doing this. This isn't me. This is a new thing that you drove me to. I blame other people for my problems. Maybe it is, I made this covenant marriage, I made a commitment before man and before God, and I said, God, till death do me part, but I didn't know that they would act like that. And now I'm ready to walk away from my commitment that I made between me and God and another person. Why? I'm blaming somebody else for the problem in my own heart. And if we're not careful, we will slowly drift further and further and further and further away from God. I I wanna forgive them, but they keep doing the same thing and they keep reopening the wound and I blame other people for the bitterness that I let harbor in my heart, for the unforgiveness that I let harbor in my heart and I have to learn to take responsibility and to say God I want you to work on me because God I don't necessarily need you to change the world around me for me to honor you in every way that I can number five I believe that I know better than God I know I may have a heart issue I know that I've put somebody else in the chair. I know that I made all types of wrong decisions. When I believe that I know better than God. Chapter 15, verse number 19 and 20, it says this. It says, why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? And then verse 20, (laughs) Saul starts arguing with the prophet. Says, but I did obey the Lord, sir. Okay. But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back King of God, but I destroyed everyone else. And he says, essentially saying, God, I know you gave me a specific plan. I know you gave me a specific way, but God, maybe it is that you've made a little bit of a mistake. Maybe if you would have let me consult on the plan, we could have come up with a better plan that worked for all of us. 
Maybe had we sit down, sat down and came up with like an evaluation on how I would be graded as king, we wouldn't be in this situation, God. I'm just telling you, I accomplished a mission. I just did it my own little way. Uh, he wanted to serve God with his own agenda. And you and I do the same thing. We have these things that we know God has said, but what do we do? God, I love the plan you gave. I love that you want me to live this life. I love that you want me to be in heaven with you. But there's these few things that I think I should tweak. For example, God, I know you said there's a way that you've established covenant marriage and that, that's that I'm supposed to be married before I have sex or move in together and do all of that stuff. And God, I agree with all that. I believe in the covenant. I believe the two shall become one. I believe in love, all of that stuff. But God, this one thing about not having sex till marriage, that thing, if you would have just talked to me about it first, we could have tweaked that a little bit. I think I know just a little bit better than you. Maybe that's not the one for you. Maybe it is, God, I, I know that I want to give and I know that I'm supposed to give and tithe, but God, rather than tithing off of my first fruits, I want to invest all of my stuff and then I want to tithe off the overflow. So if it does well, I'll tithe off, off of that. I know you said give it first, but there's this one thing that I think you could have tweaked a little bit, God, because you didn't understand compound interest. And we start making excuses for why we want to be blatantly disobedient to something that God said. And the truth is, God has never been about rules, but he always has a standard. And his love for you is proof of his standard. And he wants you and I to live in a way that honors him, not because he wants us to live a bad life, but because he loves us so much and wants us to live the life he designed for us. But sometimes we convince ourselves that we know a little bit more than God. God, I know you want me to serve, but I just have a lot going on in life right now, God. And if you would have known how busy I was going to be this year, you wouldn't even have thought about asking me to serve. God, I know you want my kids and my students connected in ministry so that they can be known and loved and all of that stuff. But God, if you knew how crazy their schedules were, you wouldn't even have asked them to be connected to church. I think I know a little bit better than you, God. And it sounds good when we're making small excuses, but when we call it for what it is, which is I think that I know better than the creator of the universe, it helps us to stand face to face with the fact that our hearts, they naturally drift. They naturally drift. I'm closing my Bible. Church, I want us to be people who are willing to consistently examine our hearts because just like Saul from chapter 10 to, to chapter 13 and 15 had this slow leak and slow drift you and I are prone to the same drift the same leaks here recently uh, last Thursday um, my wife and I had some house guests. My, my mom and my mother-in-law decided to visit at the same time. It went just as great as it sounds, by the way, um, swimmingly. If you guys are watching, I love that we got a chance to do that once in our lifetimes. Um, it's wonderful. Um, they flew in. <laughs> 
they flew in on a Thursday night around 11.35. And so all Thursday after we got off work, my wife and I were cleaning the house. And she said, hey, babe, we don't have to do the whole normal deep clean that we do. We could just do some light stuff. I said, okay, babe, you know, just let me know what I need to do on my list. She said, okay, it'd be great. If you could just clean those baseboards for me. And if you could go through and dust all the window seals and dust the blinds too. So get the ladder out so that we can get up to the top and dust those. And then when we were moving in, we chipped the paint in a couple of places. If you could do all the touch up paint, that would be great. And then make sure you use Windex in all the bathrooms and all the exterior windows. Okay, not, not, not too much of a deep clean, but anyway, we're, we're cleaning up and, and the whole time we're cleaning up, my wife keeps saying, babe, do you, do you smell something? And I'm like, no, babe, I don't smell anything. Just a smell of hard work over here. You know, if I can have some water or some lemonade, that would be awesome. And um, so we, we're working and we get there, it's late and it's about time for me to leave. And my wife keeps saying, hey, do you, you smell something? I'm like, no, I'm, I'm good. And so we go and I'm like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm gonna light some candles in the room so it smells good when our parents get here. It's like, no, we'll just spray because you don't want the candles burning all night. I said, okay, good idea. We spray the rooms and we leave and I go off to the airport, 11 o'clock-ish. Um, my wife, her words, not mine. She said, I, I went to lay down, but there was something just troubling me. I didn't know what it was. And even though our kitchen is far from our bedroom, she said, I laid down and somehow in the stillness of the house, I heard a gas leak. And you and I know that that type of stuff doesn't happen. You don't hear those types of things. So I believe it was the Lord. And she walks into the kitchen and she notices that somehow throughout the course of the day, when we were cleaning, we turned the knob on the stove ever so slightly and all day it had been leaking gas into our house. So finally I, I called the, the fire department and they come out and as they're about to walk into, you know, they're like, hey, we'll get it taken care of, it's just a gas leak. They are about to walk into our garage so they can go turn it off. And as he steps into the garage, he stops and he backs away and he says, I can't go in that way. And they open the door and they start to aerate the house and they put on some gear so that they can go in and actually take care of it. And they step out of the house. I'm on my way back and I am speeding. Lord, forgive me. I am speeding. I'm becoming partial. I am speeding on my way to the house trying to get back to my wife. And the fireman tells my wife, ma'am, had you gone to sleep, you would have died. And I wrestle with this thing as a husband and I think about what if this was a normal Thursday? Or what if we had, what if we lit a candle? Or what if she had gone to sleep? We'd be having a very different conversation right now. And then I started to get convicted because I felt like the Lord was saying, hey, there's some things in your heart and in your life that have been leaking for a long time. And if you go to sleep on them, they will destroy some things in your life. And they will kill some things in your life. There's some sin that you might have in your heart, some bitterness that you might have been holding on to, some lust, some envy, some prejudice, some racism, some jealousy. There's something that you've been holding on to that's been ever so slightly leaking for so long. And if you go to sleep, it'll destroy your family. If you go to sleep, it'll destroy your finances. If you go to sleep, it'll destroy your marriage. If you go to sleep on it, and if you don't pay attention to it, it will destroy your relationship with God. 
Church, can we do the work this week of finding the leaks, of paying attention to the thing that maybe we've been ignoring for too long? The thing that started out so innocent and so in control. Can we pay attention to that this week and check our hearts? Let's pray. God, thank you for the fact that we're alive and breathing right now. Because the fact that we are breathing is proof that you still have a plan. It's proof that you've given us another chance. It's proof that you want us to get it right. It's proof that you have a mission for us. And because you love us, you have a standard. And our breathing, the breath in our bodies is proof of your goodness, of your grace, and of your mercy, which is the only reason we get a chance to take this next breath. So God, thank you for loving us enough to give us chance after chance after chance after chance. Remind us this week, God, that you've given us chances to fix some leaks in our lives. And God, in the areas that we're struggling, I pray that you would gently, and I do mean gently, Father, nudge us in the direction that we need to go. God, in the moments that we're being hard-headed, I pray, God, that you don't have to break us in order to get us where you need us to go. Help us to heed your voice and to heed your word and to not end up like King Saul, slowly drifting away. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody together say it. Amen. Amen. Come on, can we-